This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 374th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a sort of besmirched ankylosaur, which besmirched. I'm going to try to <laughs> make make right. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Spinophorosaurus, and a fun fact, which is about one of the most unusual ways that animals defend themselves. Ooh. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about it before. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And we got two new patrons to thank this week. They are Matt, thank you very much for joining, and also Colton. So thank you as well. And rounding out our shout-outs, we've got Rhinosaurus, Ayrton and Everett, Mr. DNA, Arya and Tristanosaurus, Danny Hermes, Michael, the Georges family, and Taya. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody. It's so cool to see our dinosaur enthusiast community growing. And of course, that's all happening on our Patreon. Real quick, before we get into our news, I just want to have a quick update break on Stegouros. Stegouros is that ankylosaur with, I described it as an axe-like tail. Remember, it had like the seven points on both sides of its tail. And I was like, that. Eh. The best thing I can come up with is an axe because it's sort of thin when you're looking at it from the side. Mm -hmm. And it, presumably it swung it from side to side, so it would have been sort of axe-like. But it's got a whole bunch of spikes on it, so it didn't seem that axe-like. So I threw out a, a call for if anybody knows a better weapon which matches this crazy tail on Stego Uros, let me know. And what do we get? So thanks to Talon for being the first one to point this out on our Discord I think they're completely right, and the tail is closest to a maqua weep. That's as best as I can pronounce it. It's got that uh, nawat lateral fricative at the end of it, so it's kind of tricky to pronounce. But it basically looks like a wood paddle with all these obsidian blades sticking out of the sides. <laughs> Dangerous weapon. Yeah, and it has. It looks so similar. Like even the number of blades sticking out of it looks similar. The fact that it's really broad on one side, but that's not the side that's really used. That's sort of just to resist the force of hitting it edge on. It is a very close analogy for Stegouros and its crazy spiky tail. And the Maqua Wheat was used by Mayans, Aztec, and other civilizations in the Americas. It was one of the things that basically the native tribes were using to fight the Spanish was this weapon. And apparently obsidian, which was what the blades are made out of, can be sharper than a razor blade made out of steel. It can be super sharp. So 
is a pretty formidable weapon. A good thing if you're gonna, you know, it's like kind of a combination of a sword and a bat in a way, like really sharp, but also has some good force behind it. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting weapon, and I think a really good analogy for Stego Uros. So thanks to everybody who shared that and pointed it out to us. Jumping into the news, oh, it's me again. Yeah, you got a new dinosaur, so you get to go first. You've got a new sauropodomorph. Somebody commented in our Discord recently that our last episode had no sauropods, so <laughs> don't worry, we're back. Oh, good. <laughs> Wouldn't want to go a whole episode without a sauropod. I know, right? This one is called Issy Sa'anek, and it was found in what's now Greenland. It was published in the journal Diversity by Victor Bakari and others. And it's a sauropodomorph. It looks similar to Platyosaurus. It's got that long tail, a somewhat long neck, and walked on two legs. Issy's one of the first sauropodomorphs from the northern hemisphere. It's the first one to be in a latitude over 40 degrees north. Meaning it's the earliest one known over 40 degrees north? I think it's just the first one we know of. First sauropodomorph we know of that is that far north. Oh, the first sauropodomorph. I was going to say, because we've got these Prince Creek things that were way up in the Arctic Circle. (laughs) But yeah, there weren't any sauropods up there. Or sauropodomorphs even. It is pretty early. It It lived in the late Triassic around 214 million years ago. And it was medium-sized. The holotype skull is about 234 millimeters long. That's n- about nine inches. Okay, yeah, that's a pretty small skull. But, I mean, Platyosaurus didn't have that big of a head. And I guess sauropods in general don't really have that big of a head. So I'm assuming they didn't find that much of the body that you're basing this on the head. They found two nearly complete articulated skulls. Well, that, I mean, that's so weird for a sauropod. All you find is the skulls? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There were some postcranial elements that are possibly related to one of the skulls that was collected in 2012, but that's not yet been prepared. So mm. the dinosaur has been named based on these two skulls. Gotcha. The name Isasanek is from Kalothisut. You're doing lateral fricatives too. I'm not very good at them. Thanks to Greenland. <laughs> and that name means cold bone. The language is closely related to Inuit languages in Canada, and it's the most widely spoken Eskimo Aleut language. So they use this language to honor the local culture. And the name refers to the, quote, conditions in which the fossils were recovered. That's the genus and the species? Yeah, the whole thing means cold bone. It sounds like it was cold, so I guess a fitting name. Yes. So like I mentioned, they found these two skulls, One's a late-stage juvenile to subadult. The other one is a medium-stage juvenile, and that's based mostly on the differences in the size of the skull. These fossils were found in 1991, and one of the skulls described in 1994 was referred to Platyosaurus. I guess there's a long history of pretty much every sauropodomorph, early sauropodomorph from the Triassic being referred to Platyosaurus. Yeah, it's somewhat of a wastebasket taxon. Yeah, So then in 1995, a smaller skull was found, and both of these skulls are now at the Natural History Museum of Denmark. The authors found enough differences in the skull to name a new dinosaur, though, you know, not be Platyosaurus. And that's based on the bone proportions and shapes. They CT scanned the skulls and then created 3D models, and they compared it to other basal sauropodomorphs, and they found it to be a sister clade to Platyosaurus, so they're still closely related. As a quick reminder, Platyosaurus 
Angohardi was the first non-sauropod sauropodomorph named outside the UK. Now, the older specimen or skull has at least 18 tooth positions. Some of the dentary, the jaw, though, was missing, so it's possible it had 20 or more teeth. And the younger specimen had only 18 tooth positions. And having under 20 teeth, that reduced dentary teeth count, is related to platysaurid growth or ontogeny. The skull is almost twice as long as it is tall. It is crushed, though, along the sides, laterally. There's five teeth in the premaxilla, which is also seen in Platysaurus, and it has leaf-shaped teeth. They also found a sclerotic ring with at least 18 plates. It was partially articulated, so there may be more, and they were in this circular arrangement. Oh, cool. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Those eye bones. It's hard for them to fossilize, and definitely rare that they fossilize in place. Yes. Isisaanek is a platysaurid. So it was bipedal and gracile. It was found in East Greenland in the Malmros clint Formation. And at the time that it lived, East Greenland, or what is now East Greenland, was connected to what is now Europe. So it lived in this transitional zone between a relatively dry interior of Pangaea and a more humid part of the continent. It also lived among large fish, amphibians, phytosaurs, and pterosaurs. And the fact that EC exists helps show the diversity of platysaurids. The skulls are now on exhibit at the Museu de Lorinha in Portugal, and more specimens, at least three of them, including a complete skeleton, have been found and they will be studied. Some of those are on display at the Geocenter Mons Klint in Denmark, and some fossils are also being prepared at Dinosaur Park Munchehagen in Germany. And then once they're all studied, all the specimens will be curated by the Natural History Museum of Denmark. Cool. I guess technically Greenland is considered an autonomous territory of the Kingdom of Denmark. But I think in practicality, it's probably mostly its own thing. Although if they don't have a big paleontology program, you could see how that connection would get the fossils over to Denmark. True. Greenland's another place I want to see someday. Yeah, it seems cold. Yeah, they got cold bones there. <laughs> they do. I don't want my bones to be cold. <laughs> I like having warm bones. And now on to our ankylosaur article. So the fizz.org title of this was the first thing I saw, and it is, quote, ankylosaur was sluggish and deaf. That's the title <laughs> I saw as well. The title in scientific reports of the main article written by Marco Shade and others is Neuroanatomy of the Notosaurid Struthiosaurus Austriacus Supports Potential Ecological Differentiations Within Ankylosauria. That's much more specific. And much less pithy. <laughs> <laughs> but they're sort of on the right track, I think. Calling it sluggish and deaf is definitely wrong, though. I mean, it might have been slower than some other animals. It definitely wasn't deaf, though. That is... I think that's besmirching. They'd be getting sued for libel if... <laughs> was it hard of hearing? If this dinosaur was still alive. Maybe. It was harder of hearing than other ankylosaurs, but not particularly hard of hearing or deaf compared to a lot of animals. So first of all, I just want to point out, it says ankylosaur was sluggish. They're not talking about a ankylosaurid at all. They're talking about one very specific notosaurid, the Struthiosaurus austriacus? Yes, exactly. 
And Struthiosaurus austriacus is about three meters or 10 feet long or less. That's like the maximum estimate, basically. Mm. It's not a very large ankylosaur, or I should say notosaur. It's probably one meter or three feet tall or less. So I, it basically looks like a big tanky dog covered in armor and spikes. So you could think about it size-wise. And no tail club because it's a notosaur. Exactly. It's from the late Cretaceous, or more specifically in the last 20 million years of the Mesozoic. And it was named Struthiosaurus way back in 1870 by Emmanuel Bunzel. And that name means ostrich lizard. It's the same root as Struthiomimus, ostrich mimic. And he picked the ostrich part of the name because its brain case reminded him of a bird. He thought <laughs> it had a bird-like brain case. So it's one of those other early examples of paleontologists in the 19th century recognizing that there were some pretty big similarities between dinosaurs and birds, mm -hmm. which is cool. I haven't even heard of this guy before, but that probably just is because... We don't know all of the paleontologists. Yeah, yeah. exactly. This new paper re-examined that holotype brain case, which was named based on its bird-likeness, using micro-CT scanning, so the, the latest and greatest technology where you can really get in there and see all the details of its brain case. It was overall fairly small, although much bigger than a walnut. That's one of those comparisons that's often thrown around. It's about 55 millimeters by 50 by 50 millimeters, so roughly two inches in each direction. There are some, obviously, dips and projections and stuff from that, but it is also kind of a small dinosaur. The semicircular canals, also known as the inner ear, are oriented, aligned with the expected head position. So the semicircular canals, again, they're, they're called semicircular because they're basically half circles, and they're in at least two directions, sometimes three. And basically, when a head tips, like when we tip our head, we have these as well, the difference in pressure throughout those semicircular canals sends a signal to your brain and it lets you know, oh, your head's tipping, <laughs> which is always a good thing to know if your head's moving around. It's really useful to have that sense. And it's the kind of thing that gives you seasickness when your head is tipping in a way that the rest of your body isn't expecting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Been there. And you can use those semicircular canals. It's a little bit controversial, but it seems like you can use them to figure out what its default head position is. Basically, like one of the semicircular canals is usually sort of oriented towards the horizon. So based on that, it looks like its head was slightly inclined. So presumably its default position of its head was with its head up. Doesn't mean that that's how its head was all the time. Like horses have that sort of semicircular canal orientation with their head pretty far off the ground. Although when they eat, obviously their head goes a lot lower. Same thing with cows. Although in this case, it's even more upright because they kind of have their nose oriented down there's some really cool paleo art that came with this and it looks sort of proud because it's like holding its <laughs> nose up in the air basically but possibly unfortunately for struthiosaurus its semicircular canals are relatively short which means that unlike large semicircular canals which make it easier for animals to balance and get the sensitive feedback from their inner ear when their head moves it didn't have that so much. So in other words, it probably didn't have a lot of pressure, evolutionary pressure, to move quickly and precisely and be able to detect that in its head. So another way you could interpret that is it might have been a little bit sluggish, at least in its head movements, because it had small semicircular canals. So the title is not completely off. No, but it's weird because they say ankylosaur was, and it's 
I just, I don't Since know why they said ankylosaur. They should have just said struthiosaurus. <laughs> Maybe because more people are familiar with the word ankylosaur than struthiosaurus. Probably. But the weird thing is ankylosaurids, the ones with tail clubs and the ones most people think of when you say ankylosaur, mm-hmm. including Cambarosaurus, Bisectipelta, and Euoplocephalus, which are the main ones we have good brain cases for that to compare, at least the ones the authors used to compare, they all have much larger semicircular canals and presumably, therefore, could detect subtle movements with their head a lot better. Unfortunately for Struthiosaurus, it's also missing a flocular recess. Oh, no. Flocular is a really fun word to say, that by the way. That is a fun word. <laughs> so the flocculus, or in the case of dinosaurs, the flocular recess, helps stabilize vision during head movement. It helps with these reflexes related to the eyes and neck muscles. It's also linked to motor control. Ankylosaurids did have a flocular recess, and they likely needed more precision, possibly for maneuvering their tail clubs. But again, Struthiosaurus did not have a flocular recess, so it didn't have a tail club either. Maybe there's a connection there. It might have also been useful for ankylosaurids if they dug for food, because digging requires, you know, I guess more movement of the head and arms and neck and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I guess that would be helpful in that way. A flocular recess has been found in Euoplocephalus and Tarkia, which is, I think, fitting since Tarkia is the brainy one, <laughs> that it would have that additional feature <laughs> to its brain, or at least its endocast. Stegosaurus and Kentrosaurus also have flocular recesses, and they also happen to have tail weaponry. So there's some more support for maybe that flocular recess is about moving the tail around and moving the head, I guess, in coordination when you have tail weaponry. Struthiosaurus also has the shortest cochlear duct of any known dinosaur. This is the thing that led to the it was deaf sort of clickbaitiness. It probably means that it couldn't hear particularly well, but they estimate that it can hear a little better than a turtle. And I looked it up. Nobody considers turtles deaf. (laughs) In fact, when you Google, is a turtle deaf, you basically get results like, well, it doesn't have ears on the outside of its head, but lots of animals don't, and they can still hear fine. So no, it wasn't deaf. It could hear better than a turtle, and everyone knows turtles can hear. But how well can a turtle hear? Well enough Mm. for what they're doing. That's the main thing that you can really get out of this is you might see what the evolutionary pressures are on it based on its lifestyle and how much it needed to hear. Its hearing looks especially bad when you compare it to ankylosaurids that have larger cochlear ducts. And since animals usually have hearing to match their vocalizations, it also supports the idea that ankylosaurids could hear and vocalize more than notosaurids. In other words, the ones with tail clubs could hear better than the ones without, and also probably vocalized more. That might also mean that ankylosaurids were more social than notosaurids. A lot of times there's a connection between what kind of vocalizations and hearing abilities an animal has and how much they socialize, but not always. The range of hearing, they could calculate the frequencies based on some of the details of the anatomy, and they found that the frequency range was between 296 and 2,164 hertz. For comparison, humans are about 20 to 20,000, so we go less than a tenth of the minimum to 10x the top. That's where they got the the deafness part then. I don't think so, because a lot of animals don't have a very broad range of hearing. Mm. Humans actually have a pretty exceptionally large range of hearing. I mean, we obviously have really complex vocalizations and social structures too, so that might be our bias (laughs) of making that connection. But a lot of 
dinosaurs, including like tyrannosaurs, I remember being roughly in this ballpark. They might go up to three or 4,000, but they're not in the 10,000 range or anything like that. Basically, what it means in terms of a keyboard is they couldn't hear any notes below and including middle C on a piano, (laughs) (laughs) at least the fundamental frequencies. So when you play a note, you also get the harmonics above it. So they could hear part of it if you go below it, but they wouldn't hear the fundamental frequencies of those lower notes. And they couldn't hear the highest six keys on a keyboard at all. Hmm. That's all above 2100 hertz. It's basically the same sort of range that a flute can play. So if you know what a flute sounds like, that's sort of the range you can hear. That's quite a variety of sounds. It's that not is, like yeah. Flutes don't make many noises. They they got a, a range. Do a lot of songs with a flute. Exactly. So I don't. I, it could hear better than a turtle. It could hear the range of a flute. It's <laughs> not that bad. It might not be good enough to hear like leaves crunching or something. Though. Right. Way to come to this notosaurid's defense. Yeah. They called it deaf. It's not <laughs> deaf. It's not even that sluggish. They also did find that it had a lot of blood vessels around the brain, which might support the hypothesis that they used extra blood vessels around the brain to cool down the brain. Because remember, it's like encased in armor. So maybe if it can get that blood away, maybe towards the ears a little bit, the sides of the head or the top of the head, that would help with cooling down the brain. The way the authors summarized the details of the ear is it, quote, suggests a rather inert lifestyle without the necessity of sophisticated senses for equilibrium and hearing, end quote. So the way I read that is it's the ultimate minding its own business dinosaur. Or sluggish. Well, it's just it's it's just eating probably <laughs> alone. It's not worried about attacking anything it's or being attacked. It's not talking to anybody yeah. or listening. Or, yeah. It's just hanging out, enjoying its food most of the time. <laughs> that's That's the way I interpret it. And the press release did come with a really beautiful piece of paleo art depicting Struthiosaurus by Fabrizio de Rossi, and it shows some really impressive shoulder spikes on it as well. And then also, I think, that fairly proud Mm -hmm. (laughs) head position and lots of osteoderms all over its body, too. So presumably, if something was going to mess with it, it would pull an armadillo and just sort of hunker down or maybe even just ignore it because nothing was going to mess with it anyway. Right. They're too afraid of those shoulder spikes. Yeah. Or, yeah, it just must not have had a whole lot of pressure to develop defenses or good hearing or the ability to run away. Really a lot of things, (laughs) which is what led me to the fun fact. (laughs) All right. I look forward to it. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. 
Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Our next news item The Mace Brown Museum of Natural History in Charleston, South Carolina, is offering a new paleontology scholarship. Nice. Yeah, it's funded through crowdfunding. Oh, weird. Specifically a donation box inside the museum. And this money will also go to outreach programs and maintaining the fossil displays. So the first scholarship they've already chosen is going to go to geology and Spanish major student Camille Sullivan. And as part of the scholarship, she's also working as a docent at the museum, which is pretty cool. Next, in Frisco, Texas, they're building a new library that is going to include a life-size model of a T-Rex skeleton. Oh, wow. Yeah. Everything's bigger in Texas. (laughs) That's true. They put full-size T-Rex replicas in their museums (laughs) or their libraries. (laughs) So this library, it's opening this fall, 2022. They're looking to name their T-Rex. So they're having a contest between now and February 6th for community members. You can submit some names via a website. It's got such an obvious choice. Wouldn't you just call it Tex-Rex? Oh, I didn't think of that. It's like T-Rex, Tex-Rex you're in not, Texas. You're not a community member since you don't live there, so <laughs> you can't submit that name. But maybe someone else will. <laughs> it seems obvious. Well, we'll see. <laughs> they're expecting their T-Rex to be the library's mascot, which is pretty cool. And it said they're going to be able to do some cool things. They're not too clear on the details other than somehow it can track you and talk to you. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that probably just means that there's a motion-activated speaker. Right. Is my guess. Because if it's a model of a T-Rex skeleton and not like a big animatronic, yeah. <laughs> I don't expect it to be turning. That would be kind of creepy if like the bones were turning towards you Ooh, and yeah. moving their would head. Be. Well, they said they also have some Easter eggs throughout the library that's tied to the T-Rex. So who knows? Maybe there's some animatronics going on. I don't know. It's nice to hear that. Libraries are adding dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Just put dinosaurs everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and then last in the news, Sir David Attenborough has a new documentary coming out later this year called Dinosaurs the Final Day. And it's going to be about a dig site in North Dakota known as Tanus. It's part of the Hell Creek Formation. Oh, we haven't heard an update on that in a really long time. Well, we will later this year. Oh, cool. Robert De Palma and a team have been working on the area the last three years to figure out what happened the day the asteroid hit Earth. And it sounds like they're going to try to put together a minute-by-minute picture of what happened. 
Awesome. Yeah, that that was when we covered it. It had fossilized fish that basically had spherules that were presumed to have rained down from the impact, like glass that oh, rained yeah. and solidified, and then got stuck in their gills. And then the fact that all this stuff was mixed up and everything, it looked like it might have been caused by a tsunami or earthquake satias or something like that. That's going to be some crazy visuals. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad we're getting an update. I was I was thinking about reaching out to, to Palma to see if he would update us, <laughs> but I guess he's been busy. Yeah. Attenborough's also busy, and he's 95 years old. Wow. It's impressive. That guy doesn't stop. No. When you do what you love, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure when exactly it's coming out other than later this year, but hopefully the sooner the better. Yeah. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Spinophorosaurus, which was a request from Morgan via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Spinophorosaurus was a basal sauropod that lived in the Middle Jurassic in what is now Niger. And it looked like other sauropods. It was bulky with a long neck and tail and on four legs. It had a somewhat upright posture, though. Three specimens have been found, and it's one of the most complete known basal sauropods. As a subadult, it was estimated to be about 43 feet or 13 meters long, and the paratype was estimated to be about 46 feet or 14 meters long. It's also estimated to weigh about 7 metric tons. Spinophorosaurus had a short, deep, broad brain case and spatulate or spoon-shaped teeth, as well as 13 neck vertebrae. Its neck vertebrae was similar to Jobaria and Cediosaurus. It had small air-filled internal chambers in the dorsal vertebrae, also known as the back vertebrae. And it's interesting because air sacs are known in much later sauropods. Hmm. Because this one's only from the middle Jurassic. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it's a basal sauropod. It had a rigid spine and neural spines that were wrinkled, as well as a robust pelvis and a strong, rigid tail. And that tail had more than 37 caudal vertebrae. You don't often hear sauropod tails described as as rigid. Yeah, that's That's true. Pretty unusual. The chevrons in the front of the tail were blade-like, and the chevrons in the back of the tail were rod-like. Now, originally, it was thought that Spinophorosaurus had spiked osteoderms at the end of the tail. And they thought, well, this right supposed osteoderm was larger than the left one and a little bit different in shape, so they probably didn't form a pair. These tail spikes, when they were thought to be spikes, were thought to be large and bony near the end of the tail and arranged in a similar way to Shunosaurus. That's a sauropod that lived around the same time in what is now China. And does have some pretty cool tail weaponry. Yes. Then in 2012, Emanuel Schopp and others found that the tail spikes were somewhat L-shaped and more like the L-shaped bones found in the Howe Quarry in the Morrison Formation than the tail spikes of Shunosaurus. They also weren't as wrinkled or rugose compared to other dinosaurs' osteoderms. And the L-shaped elements of Spinophorosaurus were a bit broader than the L-shaped elements found in the Howe Quarry, and they had a triangular outline. They also found broken edges, so it's possible that, you know, they originally they didn't think they came in a pair, but maybe this was a pair that came in the same size. Mm, and one of them just broke more than the other? Yeah. But last, these were found below the scapula, the shoulder blade. So they suggested that instead of tail spikes, these were clavicles. Mm. So <laughs> there's a big difference between a, a tail spike and a shoulder bone or a collarbone. Yes. 
The type species is Spinophorosaurus nigerensis. It was described in 2009 by Christian Rems and others, and the genus name means spine-bearing lizard. That's based on what was thought to be those spiked osteoderms on the end of the tail that are now thought to be clavicles. And the species name refers to the Republic of Niger. A couple individuals were collected in 2006 and 2007 at the rural community of Adarbizanet, and a juvenile was also later assigned to Spinophorosaurus. A lot of dinosaurs were found in Niger in the 1960s and 1970s, and Palsarino excavated there between 1999 and 2003 and found Jobaria and or Venator. In 2003, the Paldas Project, Paleontology and Development, excavated the area with the goal of combining paleontological research with a developmental program. The idea was to improve infrastructure, education, and promote tourism. In 2005, Ulrich Yoger and Edgar Sommer were exploring the area, and locals told them about some large bones in a new locality. They found a rounded bone tip coming out of the surface, and that turned out to be a complete femur of the holotype of Spinophorosaurus. Nice. Yeah, they also found a shoulder blade and a vertebra. These fossils were found in hard, brittle siltstone and then removed with light blows from hammers. They worked with more of the local people and found most of that specimen in two days, and it was mostly complete. It's in a death pose. And in a photograph of that holotype at the dig site, it looks like those fossil digs that you see at museums where you brush away the dirt and there's mm-hmm. a nearly complete dinosaur. It's crazy. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like when you're describing the rock that it was brittle. Mm-hmm. That you, what you want is a brittle rock and a not brittle <laughs> fossil underneath it. So if that's the case, yeah, you could remove a lot of the rock in the field, which would be handy. Yeah, it looks really cool. Now, they didn't have the right equipment or permits at the time, so they covered the fossil with debris to protect it, and then they went back to Germany with plans to do a full excavation via the Braunschweig Museum. They got a permit in 2006, and the plan was that in exchange for excavating, the museum would build a new school in the area. Oh, that's a nice exchange. Yeah. They also got sponsors, and this project was called Project Dino. Now, around the same time, the Paldez team from Spain was also working in the area. The mayor of Adarbizanat, Mohamed Eshika, had given the team from Spain permission to excavate the skeleton that Yoga and Salmer had been working on. And that skeleton, the holotype, ended up being shipped to Spain without the German team knowing. When they went back, they found an empty dig site. Oh, geez. After they had left it there and excavated most of it? Yeah. Oh, boy. The German team, they did end up finding the paratype specimen, however, so it wasn't a completely wasted trip. And that was a really difficult excavation. There wasn't enough water. Some people who were helping to dig fainted. Temperatures got to 109 to 113 degrees Fahrenheit, or 43 to 45 degrees Celsius. Ugh. I'd rather be in Greenland. <laughs> and they said after nearly a week, all but two of the people on their team were sick with diarrhea and circulation problems. Oh, boy. There's just... There wasn't much shade when they were digging either. And there were a few sandstorms that were described as peeling their skin. Everything about this sounds terrible. (laughs) So their team, they finished on April 3rd, and then Ashika told them about what happened to that first skeleton that went to Spain. And to make up for it, he led them to another fossil site where they found the back end of possibly a Jobaria skeleton, but they had to leave that in the field until the next season. And the... (sighs) team from Spain canceled their plans to excavate for that season 
after the outbreak of the Tuareg Rebellion from 2007 to 2009. So the Spanish team didn't swoop them again? Yes. (laughs) But the Germans went back. They worked together with the local community that was comprised of people of various cultures, the Tuareg, Hausa, and Fulani people. And the dig was organized by a local Tuareg partner, Ahmed Bahani, and Tuareg chief and mayor of the village, Mohamed Eshika. This dig happened during a civil war. They were protected by the mayor, Mohamed Eshika, and the army. Wow. It's like the uh, Bone Wars, some of those. A little bit, yeah. There were also snakes and scorpions and monitor lizards that they came across while digging. One person on site, they said, was a herpetologist, so they knew what to do if they were bitten by a venomous snake. (laughs) They could ID the venomous ones, too. Yeah, Yeah. and then at night, they used flashlights and went snake hunting. Oh, jeez. I guess it's better to be on the offensive with snakes. At night, they're a little slow, too. Yeah. (laughs) Get them out of the area. (laughs) While digging, they also found petrified wood, conifers, crocodile teeth, and fish scales. So when Spinophorosaurus lived, this area was swampy and wet. Both the German and Spanish teams ended up working together to describe Spinophorosaurus. Oh, cool. Yeah. It took about two and a half years to prepare the paratype. The paratype was about 70% complete, so then the holotype helped fill in the missing pieces. And between those two specimens, most of the bones are known, although no forearms or hands have been found. The holotype includes a brain case, parts of the skull, and most of the skeleton, and the paratype includes a partial skull and incomplete skeleton. The specimens are managed by the Musée National d'Histoire Naturelle in Niger, and they were returned after being on exhibit briefly, and then they 3D printed the skeleton. So the specimens are back in Niger. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. That's great. Hopefully next time they find a dinosaur there, there'll be some local paleontologists who can work on it too. Yeah, it does sound like paleontology has gotten bigger there. Spinophorosaurus was the first sauropod to have its skeleton 3D printed. Oh, that's a fun claim to fame. Yeah. In 2012, Adrian Paramo and Francisco Ortega described a small sauropod that was found near the two Spinophorosaurus specimens. This one had 14 vertebrae, including all the neck vertebrae and some back vertebrae. And they were smaller compared to the other specimens. And there were also parts that weren't fused. So that one is considered to be a juvenile Spinophorosaurus. Maybe they were living in herds. <laughs> there were also dinosaur tracks found near the Spinophorosaurus skeletons, including six footprints from a medium-sized sauropod and 122 toed theropod footprints, possibly by swimming theropods, which may be why one toe didn't leave a mark. Hmm. Unless it's a raptor. They leave two-toed tracks as well. Hmm. There's a lot of similarities between Spinophorosaurus and Middle Jurassic Eurasian sauropods like Shunosaurus, as well as Mementosaurids. There's similarities in the vertebrae and humerus. And there's a lot of differences between Spinophorosaurus and Lower and Middle Jurassic South Gondwanan sauropods based on the shape of the neural spines, humerus, and vertebrae. And those would have been the ones that were closer. So this is another one of those where it's more closely related to the Eurasian ones while it's in Africa and less closely related to the African ones, even though that's where it is. Yes, exactly. So Spinophorosaurus helps show that features thought to be in derived sauropods that are found in East Asia are more like ancestral traits or plesiomorphic in eusauropods. So there may be a connection between sauropods from the Jurassic and what's now North Africa, Europe, and East Asia. And then important sauropod development may have happened in what is now North Africa. 
and where Spinophorosaurus lived, that area was near the equator and wet in the summer and had lots of plants. Much less surprising place to find a sauropod than Greenland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or sauropodomorph, I should say. In 2012, Fabian Knoll and others looked at the brain case of Spinophorosaurus, and they found it didn't have reduced vestibular apparatuses, these sensory apparatus in the inner ear, which may mean it was more important for Spinophorosaurus to have vision and coordinate its movements between the eyes, head, and neck. In 2018, Benjamin Gentin Sashino and others reported a probable pathology in Spinophorosaurus due to injury, and they found that Spinophorosaurus had fast-growing bone tissue. In 2015, Vidal and others made a 3D model to study how Spinophorosaurus moved and found it couldn't move its tail much. It had these overlapping chevrons like dromaeosaurs and ankylosaurs. That's that weird rigid tail. Yeah, that's so strange. You always think of sauropods as bending their necks a lot, and then usually the tail would bend to sort of help counterbalance or sometimes be used as a weapon. There's lots of reasons to have a flexible tail. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a lot of good reasons when you're that big to have a rigid tail. <laughs> but there must have been something, some reason. <laughs> yeah. In 2020, Daniel Vidal and others looked at similarities between giraffe and sauropod necks as they grew up. And they looked at the specimens of Spinophorosaurus because they're from different ages, as well as an adult and newborn giraffe, and they CT scanned all the bones. And they found that both Spinophorosaurus and giraffes get more flexible necks as they grow. Ah, It's the opposite of me. I've been getting less and less flexible the more I've grown. (laughs) Well, you're not a giraffe. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be nice. They found that a subadult Spinophorosaurus could move its neck more than Platysaurus and other previously analyzed sauropods, quote, enabling its neck to engage in many different postures unattainable by other sauropods, end quote. So its neck got more flexible as it grew, but its tail was just rigid the whole time. Strange. Yeah. They found Spinophorosaurus was probably a high browser, like giraffes, that's based on the relatively long humerus and narrow snout, and had an overall range of motion similar to a giraffe. But they found that Spinophorosaurus was as flexible in the neck as a giraffe because it had almost twice the number of neck vertebrae compared to a giraffe. So there's not as much flexibility in between the vertebrae compared to a giraffe, but it had so many that the whole neck was still flexible. Nice. Yeah, it's always surprising how few vertebrae giraffes have in their neck, mm-hmm. <laughs> considering how flexible they are. <laughs> and based on the Spinophorosaurus skeleton, it could probably, quote, browse on vegetation at nearly three times the height of its shoulders. Wow, that is really Brachiosaurus or giraffe titan like or yes. giraffe-like. Yes, and to drink water, it would have needed to splay like a giraffe. <laughs> I guess that helps explain maybe that could be why its tail would be more rigid if it's got more of an upright posture and the tail sort of going down behind it. Mm-hmm. It's not all that useful. It might not be as long and all that. So True. Now they found Spinophorosaurus to have a more vertical posture than previously thought with its tall shoulders and an elevated neck that was well above shoulder level. And that's based partially on having this 20-degree wedged sacrum, the vertebrae between the hips. Mm. Yeah, the idea being the angle of the back tells you something about the angle of the feeding posture, I suppose. Yeah, so Spinophorosaurus's snout was about 16.4 feet or 5 meters above the ground. 
A post on SV Pow agreed with Vidal and others about their reconstruction and how Spinophorosaurus had wedged sacrum, so it had a more inclined torso and neck. That means that the tail and torso are not parallel with each other. However, it also mentioned that the bones are not enough to show how vertebrae articulated, and models need to incorporate intervertebral cartilage, mm-hmm. which Vidal and others mentioned but said that since we don't really know how much cartilage there was, it's likely we won't ever know. We have seen, we saw some stuff at SVP last year, though, of ways that you can recreate the cartilage in between vertebrae by looking at specific features of the bone. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, you know, now that it's been a few years, maybe someone can look back at it and yeah, iron it out. This is a seems to be a popular dinosaur to study. There's a mm-hmm. lot of studies on it already. In 2018, Vidal and others tested hypothetical mating postures to see if Spinophorosaurus performed a cloacal kiss, backwards mating, or if the male mounted from behind. And they found that the male could mount the female from behind while resting its front legs on the back. The tail was flexible enough to get out of the way, but it couldn't perform a cloacal kiss unless they did backwards mating, where they approach each other backwards and have their tail flexed sideways. Oh, interesting. Okay, so like one reverses into the other one? Mm-hmm. That's, that's cumbersome, but I guess sauropods are cumbersome creatures. I guess, yeah. There's a model of Spinophorosaurus outside the Braunschweig Museum, and that's nicknamed Namu after the museum's name. So you can see a, a Spinophorosaurus there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And uh, our fun fact of the day, as promised, is about what I think the weirdest way of ensuring survival is that animals have come up with. So there are a lot of ways that prey species use to increase their odds of surviving, including getting bigger, getting faster, developing weapons or armor. All of those make a lot of sense. The one in this case, though, is called predator satiation. And it basically relies on the fact that predator stomachs are only so large, Mm -hmm. so they can only eat so many of the prey. Hmm. It's different than safety in numbers. So safety in numbers often reduces the total casualties for a group, meaning that if you have the same number of individuals on their own, more of them will get eaten than if you combine them into a group. For example, a herd of wildebeest has safety in numbers because the larger adults can fight off predators as a group where one individual might not succeed, and then there's the added benefit that they can protect the young by keeping them sort of in the inside. So herds have a lot of safety and number benefits. Predator satiation would basically be like if the wildebeest just had a whole ton of baby wildebeest Mm -hmm. and just said, 
Well, the predators can't eat all of them and just sort of let the predators have their fill. Isn't that kind of what sea turtles do? I don't know if that counts as predator satiation mm. because I'm not sure if those animals actually have full stomachs at the end of it. Okay. I'm, it might in some cases, but I'm not sure if it does in every case. I think in that one, some part of it is just them racing to the water and the idea that some of them will make it past the predators, mm. not necessarily that there's going to be so many turtles on the egg, on the shore <laughs> that all of the animals will be completely full. Usually in order to achieve predator satiation, maybe in all cases, you need many, many, many mating pairs to combine all of their offspring together mm-hmm. for it to work. It's obviously not the most advanced defense mechanism either because it doesn't take a a ton of coordination or intelligence or really anything. For example, both plants and animals, there are examples of predator satiation. So I think one of the most fascinating examples in India is called mautum, and that's the Hindi word for mourning. It's also known as the rat plague, rat attack, or rat flood gives you a hint about what might be happening. Lots of rats. (laughs) Yes. It happens exactly every 48 to 50 years in Northeast India. Hmm. And the rats aren't satiating a predator. They're actually the predator in this case. The bamboo seeds are the prey. Oh. So the, in this case, it's a plant using predator satiation. So Northeast India is full of dense bamboo forests And about every 48 years, the bamboo in one species flowers at once. All, every single individual bamboo plant, what happens at the end of a bamboo life cycle is it dies and it releases seed. It goes to seed. Some people say there's there's grasses and other plants that do this too. And it needs those seeds to plant because that's the only way that the species continues. The problem is these seeds are really tasty and rats love to eat them. (laughs) So what the bamboo does is the fact that they all go to flower at once, they go to seed at once, they satiate the rats with their seeds so that the rats can't possibly eat all of the bamboo seeds and enough seeds make it past the rats so that the next generation of bamboo can get established. Mm. The problem for humans in the area though is that the rats multiply very rapidly with this huge food source because, you know, the seeds last for a little while and rats can reproduce super rapidly so they can have a couple generations of babies with all this additional food. And that's where you get the rat flood. Once the rats stop finding new seeds, they end up spreading into surrounding farms, paddies, granaries, etc., and eating all the food that people are expecting to eat. Mm. This has caused many famines throughout history. They're well documented from 1862, 1911, and 1959. In 1959, at least 100 and likely thousands of people starved to death. Oh, no. And this was reportedly because the government thought the rat flood was a superstition and that it was just like, you know, people doing an astrology sort of, we think there's going to be a lot of rats coming. They're like, no, it actually happens every single 48 to 50 years. We can tell it's coming. And the fact that the government didn't listen to them actually prompted a war that ultimately led to Mizoram being established as a new state in India. Hmm. So this rat plague slash predator satiation by bamboo had really important political ramifications as well. And then in 2006, because you may realize 1959 is more than 50 years ago, in 2006, there was another rat plague and they prepared for it by partially switching crops 
to spices that rats aren't interested in, like ginger and turmeric and things. And the army also helped with pest control by putting out tons of rat traps and rat poison. So they knew it wasn't a superstition then. Yes, they had definitely learned their lesson. In fact, the party that was like a sort of a separatist party was named after the famine caused by that rat plague. Very interesting. There are also lots of other bamboo predator satiation events that occur regularly around Asia, South America, and Africa on different intervals with different species. So they're not all 50 years. Some of them are more like 30 years. There's been some really bad ones in Southeast Asia too where over 10,000 people died. So it's a very serious event that occurs pretty regularly. It's possible that the rats inadvertently caused the bamboo to become a predator satiation (laughs) species. (laughs) The idea is basically that bamboo seeds that are released on schedule with the Mautum survive while the bamboo seeds on any other schedule quickly get gobbled up by the rats that are around. And then over time, all of the bamboo in that species ends up shifting over to that same schedule. It's a cycle. Yeah. It's also possible that the bamboo figured it out on its own because plants can't communicate with each other and things. A more famous example, at least in the U.S., is cicadas. They have a rhythmic breeding season, which is another example of predator satiation. Cicadas are, if you're not familiar, these giant bugs that spend over 99% of their lives underground as nymphs around tree roots, mostly in the eastern and midwest U.S. They emerge in crazy numbers. One study found a minimum of 32 per square foot. (laughs) (laughs) One, you know, cicada season. I've seen pictures and videos of people covered in cicadas. There are so many cicadas. When I grew up in Wisconsin, yeah, I lived through at least one of these cicada events. I think probably two. That translates, by the way, to about 344 per square meter, or as the researchers estimated, 1.4 million cicadas per acre. That's an insane amount of cicadas, Mm -hmm. obviously. They only emerge on prime number years, for example, every 13 or 17 years, presumably so that different cicada species don't emerge on the same year and sort of screw up their predator satiation effect because you don't, it's better if you're spread out a little bit species-wise. After the cicadas come out, they spend a couple of months making crazy loud mating calls which is really irritating, (laughs) and mating. And then the nymphs go underground for a decade or two again before repeating the cycle. And that's how they do it. That's how they survive. It's purely predator satiation. They have absolutely zero defenses against predators. They just figure if a million of us come out at once per acre, they can't eat all of us. I think some people eat them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a there's so much food. Why not? Mm -hmm. One of the cicada's main predators, by the way, is dinosaurs or birds. <laughs> That's not surprising. Yeah. It's a feast. <laughs> we also know of at least one dinosaur that seemed to practice predator satiation, and that is passenger pigeons. They used to live in eastern and central North America. Unfortunately for the birds, though, humans could hunt much more than the predators they were used to evolving satiating. So there were actually hunting competitions to see who could hunt the most passenger pigeons. One hunter reportedly killed 30,000 birds in a competition. Wow. Which is insane and obviously a huge waste. I was just thinking, yeah, that's too much meat. And eventually people overhunted passenger pigeons so much that they are now extinct. Obviously humans are crazy effective predators 
and we need to be careful not to drive more plants and animals to extinction. And it does seem like the ones that rely on predator satiation might be some of the most vulnerable because they come out in huge numbers. And if you just go there and catch all of them, then Mm -hmm. they're gone. But on a happier note, it does make you wonder if any dinosaurs in the Mesozoic practiced predator satiation could be i'm imagining like a hundred thousand sauropods all emerging out of the ground from buried nests at once that would be amazing (laughs) and we've seen in a lot of dinosaur documentaries the sauropods that are running to safety yeah yeah but this would be like they don't even bother to run to safety like cicadas they just sort of come out of the ground and it's like okay try to eat us (laughs) (laughs) there's so many of us (laughs) one day we'll get large and destroy you yeah (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. And if you are not yet, consider joining our community on Patreon, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.